Well, good morning, Sound City. Uh, great to be with you. Um, I told the first service when uh, I got up here that to see what you all are doing in, in affirming the elders, the new elders, uh, to, to lead you and to care for you, uh, Pastor Aaron mentioned that it's something that he's been longing for for really since last January uh, 2015. It's something that we in, at Redemption Spokane have not yet been able to experience. We're in the early stages of trying to uh, identify some, some men, and, and by God's grace, some of those men are starting to rear their heads a bit. Uh, and as Pastor Aaron said, it's not a, a switch that gets flipped. It actually is witnessing and seeing the Holy Spirit using men who are already eldering within the, the church, already caring, already pastoring, without ever even being given the title. And uh, for you all to be able to, to celebrate that, to recognize that, to affirm that, for us to be able to witness it is really quite a joy. And so I consider it a great privilege to be here. Um, my wife, Pam, I got a, uh, not a video, I got a picture here. Uh, that I'd like to show you. This is of my family here, and um, my beautiful wife, Pam, she's with me today, and we've got some friends here who've traveled in to be with us as well. Pam and I will be married 20 years in January, and uh, yeah. Um, and while I seem to have aged poorly, uh, she has done exceedingly well. And she's born and raised in Spokane, and so for us to come back to Spokane and be at home is, is really a, a joy. My son, Evan Michael, is 16 and is now driving, and so that has increased our prayer life and, uh, and our insurance exponentially. Um, but he is a wonderful young man. He is an aspiring musician. He plays the guitar. He has played violin since he was in third grade. And, and one of the joys uh, for me as a, as a dad is to be able, and as a pastor, and Pastor Aaron knows this with his father, is to be able to serve in worship and, and, and uh, serving in a church together with my son. So he is on our worship team playing the guitar and, and loves it. And uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, my beautiful daughter, Faith Noel, uh, while Evan will be a junior, Faith is 10 and she'll be a fifth grader this year. She is our social butterfly. There is not a stranger that she knows. I mean, everybody to her is a friend and it's why we moved into a gated community. And uh, <laughs> she plays with everybody there, all the kids. Uh, she was at some girl's house just the other day and the, the nanny that was there, they were making some muffins and Faith is walking these muffins to all sorts of neighbors and stuff, and uh, thankfully we were out of town, so we didn't experience the awkward reality of all of that. Um, but but she uh, she's like I said, she loves everyone. She plays with every every kid, and she tests the square uh, or the surface area of our house every day with cartwheels and handstands and all those kinds of things. But uh, she is an absolute joy and a treasure to to be her dad. Uh, prior to pastoral ministry, I served in the Air Force for eight years as a combat survival, evasion, resistance, and escape instructor at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane. I met Pam there, and when I got out of the service just before 9-11, uh, became a, a full-time vocational pastor in youth ministry out in the Spokane Valley, and then 9-11 took place, and I tried to get back into uh, the survival school at Fairchild. My wife didn't appreciate my attempts to try to do that right after 9-11. But then I contracted with the government for a year. And then in 2002, my family and I, we moved to Minnesota where we have some family. And I, I pastored a church by myself. I was the only pastor in a small town in southwest Minnesota, Marshall, Marshall Minnesota. Any of you ever order anything from Schwann's? That's, that's where... Schwann's is, yeah. They, it's corn and Schwann's is all that exists in Marshall, Minnesota. Uh, it was there for three years. It was super difficult, very challenging. We felt really isolated, um, and we learned a ton, but we didn't recognize what we were learning until we had to leave because it really was so challenging. Then we moved to Wilmer, Minnesota, which if any of you have ever had Jenny O Turkey, that's Wilmer, Minnesota. Okay? So uh, they're not known for really much anything else. Uh, turkey and ice cream in that area, and corn. And, uh, and so I was there for eight years as a youth and family pastor. And then in 2013, the Lord called us back to the Northwest. We had always wanted to get back to Spokane. We felt called to pastor there and to, to serve there. 
uh, but every door seemed to be closed in Spokane, and then an opportunity came up to be a part of Mars Hill Church and the lead pastor residency program. And so for eight months, I was there with Pastor Aaron and, and three other men and learning what it means to plant a church in that context, knowing that the, they were going to send us to Spokane to plant Mars Hill, Spokane, and we all know how well that went. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, I had Facebooked a friend yesterday who was a part of our residency and, and said it was a picture of our family having uh, lunch at a place where we had had lunch multiple times as residents and just said, thinking of you guys, and one of the residents says, yes, and everything turned out just like we'd planned. And that obviously wasn't the case. However, in God's graciousness and in his mercy and in his love for us uh, has done really exponentially more than we could have really ever imagined. And so we have been back in Spokane since April of 2014 to begin that work or to continue that work that began uh, months before in informational meetings. And, uh, and now, just like you, uh, January 4th, 2015, we launched as Redemption Spokane. And uh, as you launched as Sound City Bible Church. Now, the difference between what we experienced and what you experienced, you also had a lot of other things that was a little bit more challenging for, than it was for us. But for us, that Sunday was the very first Sunday that we ever had uh, officially been a church. And so when we were planting or working on the, the core group of uh, Mars Hill Spokane, we never launched. We never had the opportunity and there were times when I'd look at some of our guys and my XP and we'd be on phone calls or video calls and we'd look at each other after one of our calls and we'd go, do you still have a job? I don't know. Do you still? Well, I think so. Okay? And we just didn't know what was going on. And, and in September of 2014, we had our first core group worship gathering. It wasn't open to the public and we had 35 adults and kids. And just two weeks ago, uh, we had 194 adults and kids in July, in July. And we paid them all to show up. Uh, it, it was just so amazing to see. I tell our people often that there are times that I just marvel at the fact that anybody shows up at all because of our history, because of what we've experienced, because we've really made a lot of mistakes along the way in trying to figure out what were we supposed to really be and, and, and how we were going to function, and we didn't really have much of a backing and, and none of that kind of stuff. And, uh, and the Lord just continues to bless us. And one of those ways that he does bless us and has over the last year is by your faithful and generous support of our church. And so uh, I bring with me and my wife love and gratitude and uh, just thankfulness uh, from our church to yours for the way that you care for us, um, not only praying for us, uh, but also helping support us monthly. We, we couldn't do it without you, and uh, I'm grateful for that. Let me just give you a little bit of some of the other dynamics of our church. We have about 100 adults that are spread out over seven community groups, which again seems to be a miracle for us. And uh, we have baptized in the last year nine people and 21 families. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's wonderful to be able to do those. And then 21 families have dedicated their children uh, in our church. And we, we do church growth old-fashioned way by procreation. And uh, many, of our, many of our people in our church are really, they're young marrieds, and, and all of them seem to be pregnant. And uh, <laughs> back in, in November, we experienced um, one of the most powerful windstorms in eastern Washington, and the power was out for about 11 days in some parts of Spokane. There are children now coming into this world <laughs> nine months after, and, uh, and we thank the Lord for the windstorm. I've read some data about church planting, and I've shared it with our church as well, and I just want to share it with you um, because the, the data is not real encouraging. And so when we read or talk about some of these things, we actually need to see that it's, it's God doesn't really care about data. He's not into the statistics. It doesn't matter to him. But the data on church plants, especially church plant failures, is this, that over 70% of church plants fail within the first year. And so when we reached our first anniversary this past January, just like you did, we were like, yes, we made it to the first year. Super exciting. But then we read the second statistic. 80% of church plants will die within five years. 
And, uh, and then finally, nearly 80% of all church planting attempts will fail. Now, none of that is really encouraging except for the fact that we're not planting for statistics. We're not planting for somebody to use us as a model for church growth or planting, any of those kinds of things. But we have seen God's faithfulness and his mercy and his kindness to us uh, all along the way. And I know you guys have as well. Uh, I used to share with our people this little maxim that says this, that we were a church plant or are a church plant that should not exist. I mean, how encouraging would you like to be or would you be by hearing that from your pastor? You know, we're a church plant that really shouldn't exist. Given our history, given all that's taken place, um, we really shouldn't by all statistics and by all accounts. Now, we shared that or I shared that in an effort to really highlight what God has done in the midst of all the work at uh, Redemption Spokane. But about September this last year, Pastor Aaron and I were with a bunch of other former lead pastors, and we had a gal come in, and it was a time of really lament, uh, to lament over what, what we lost and in that death of one church. And a lot of it was relationships. A lot of it was there were people who were now de-churched, uh, that left the church, that believed lies about Jesus and, uh, and are now no longer a part of a body. And all those things are enormous loss that we, we carried into that. And in my time to share my story of, of uh, what the Lord has been doing, I shared that statement that we're a church plant that shouldn't exist. And this kind woman who was leading our discussion and facilitating all this rebukes me. She says, you need to stop saying that. And I actually taken pretty much a good amount of pride in, in that statement. But she says you need to stop saying that because what you're doing is you are allowing yourself to fail. That when, if you do fail or this doesn't go through, things don't happen like you thought they would, well, you know what, we were the church plant that shouldn't exist. Big deal. We'll go and do something else. She says you need to stop that. Your story is that even though a church was dying and died and was buried, that out of the ashes of that church, God said, I'm going to show you one more thing. We're going to birth a church that did not exist, and we're going to grow it. And so that, that really not only resonated with me, it, it, it humbled me and it blessed me, and that has reoriented us in terms of our story that we really are a church plant that should exist, not because of anything that we've done, not because of anything that you have done necessarily for us, but because Jesus saw fit to plant a church in really the most central location in all of Spokane. If you're familiar with Spokane, we are in uh, right off of I-90 on the division uh, entrance into downtown. You could not get a better location. And for a church that is a year and eight months, we just got to buy our building. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, and now it'll all fall apart, you know, once you take that mortgage on. But the Lord has really been incredibly gracious to us and... Uh, and I'm grateful for that. The Apostle Paul gives us a reminder of the beginning work that the Lord Jesus does in all of the lives of those who are redeemed. And this principle, I believe, is applicable to us as a church plant, and I believe it's applicable to you as a church as well. And it's this in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus will see this to completion. He will see his kingdom being built and established. He will see that to completion. We have a responsibility, but it does not depend upon us. There's nothing that we have to do that we're going to be able to do that Jesus is waiting on us to do. He is the one that's going to complete this. And it really does take an enormous amount of pressure off of me as a pastor, and it should as for, for those of us who are part of the church, that it really doesn't depend on us. We just get to be a part of it and we get to serve and we get to see people enter into the kingdom. So this is a great reminder for me and I hope it is for you. So this morning I just want to take an opportunity to share with you as my brothers and sisters at Sound City Bible Church some of the things that are central to who we are as a church and that I believe God has called us to. And some of you may be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, if you're a theological nerd like myself and Pastor Aaron and others. Uh, and his wife, uh, uh, I know she is, and question number one is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Really, that's your, that's your mission. Pastor Aaron talked about that earlier, 
to glorify God. And, but you and I can't do that in and of ourselves. There's nothing inherent within us that is crying out to glorify God. There's nothing in us before salvation or prior or apart from Jesus Christ that desires to enjoy him, let alone to glorify him. So we need help in that area. And for us as a church and for you as a church, where that help comes from is the gospel. We need the gospel and the new birth that comes from it. Paul talks about in Romans 1.6, he says this, that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. It's the power of God. It's not his method for salvation. It's not his uh, evangelism strategy. It's his power. It's his power, this good news. Now, um, for you, I'm sure, as it is for me, names mean something. Our church name means something. Redemption Spokane. Sound City Bible Church, it means something. For those of you who have a name, hopefully you were named with a name that actually means something. Uh, my legal name is Forrest Miles Rohde, and I have never been called Forrest, uh, except for people who just didn't know who I really was. My parents never called me Forrest because about the time that I was a, a, a baby, my maternal grandfather started calling me Woody. Thomas, don't get any ideas calling me Woody, and my parents didn't like that. So they started calling me Miles. But my names had meaning. I was named after two friends. Uh, Forrest Wainwright was a friend of my dad's, and Miles, and I can't remember his last name, was named after another friend of my dad's who happens to be a felon. That's super encouraging, but he named me before he broke the law. Uh, but when I became a survival instructor, my name, Forrest, actually was quite a popular name. The guys really liked that. They, th they thought, you know, you're a survival instructor, you're a mountain man, you're a woodsman. Forest means God's woodsman. And then in 1995, a very horrible tragedy took place and uh, the film Forrest Gump. And everything changed for me. Uh, and my kids still to this day will say, run, Forrest, run. And, you know, and they get disciplined and but names do mean something. And for us as a church, uh, redemption means more than just uh, the reality of what we are or who we are as a church, that that's our name. And, uh, but it means the expression and our recognition of this great need that we have, that our only source of redemption is found in Jesus Christ. Every person within the, the, well, everybody, but for us in Spokane and the greater Spokane Metroplex, it includes Coeur d'Alene and Post Falls and the Spokane Valley and out towards the Air Force Base and the South Hill, that, that everybody, their sole source of redemption is only found in Jesus. And so if they are going to experience that redemption, they need to know Jesus. They need to be confronted with Jesus. And so we have a responsibility to make sure that we never stray from the source of our redemption's hero, and that is Jesus. So we need to share the good news, and we need, but we need to be able to understand the good news first. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 10. We need to, to understand really what we've been saved from and uh, to see the good news up against the backdrop of the bad news. Paul writes in verse 10, and he's quoting a bunch of Old Testament passages, but he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouths is... Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to just take a couple of moments just to focus in on verses 23 through 24. We have the bad news and the good news here. You and I, to be able to understand the weight of the good news, we have to see it up against the backdrop of the bad news. You will not appreciate the good news unless you know the bad news. For anybody who's been diagnosed with a a horrible disease or an illness or for cancer or whatever it may be, to hear the bad news of some kind of diagnosis is catastrophic for you. Death of dreams and loss of hope and and any kind of semblance of, of a future is basically shattered. But then they come in, but now there's a cure. We have good news. We can go in and get it all out. Well, now you appreciate the good news so much more because the bad news was so bleak. It's like looking at a a big piece of black velvet and you get to see a diamond on top of that. I've shared the illustration before in our church that when I bought my wife's uh, engagement ring, uh, it's certainly not an impressive diamond. And so I'm so grateful that the the jeweler did not uh, lay out a piece of black velvet and put other diamonds to compare it and go, look how bad that one is compared to all of these. He didn't do that. He laid out the black velvet and put the one diamond on there so I could see the cut, the clarity, the carrot, everything about it. And and up against that black velvet, it was majestic. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And Paul says, the bad news, that all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There's not one who's able to inch closer. There's not somebody who is, well, almost there. No, all have fallen horribly short. But all are justified, not universalism, but all are justified by his grace as a gift. How are we justified? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the only way people are justified. That's the only, people, only way that people are made right before God, who are declared righteous before God. It's through the redemption that is in Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. My 16-year-old son thinks that my favorite word of all time in the Bible is propitiation. And it's, it's a glorious word. In fact, when I was a younger pastor and uh, trying to be really, really hip and cool and creative, uh, which is really antithetical to everything that I really am, um, I tried to come up with a series uh, called Propitiation H. Some of you get that. Yeah. But, but wisdom, the wisdom, wisdom came in the form of other people going, that's a bad idea, and I submitted to that. But, but propitiation is really one of the most breathtakingly beautiful words in all of the Bible. The Greek word hilasterion, really bound up in all of it, is the love and the mercy and the justice and the wrath of God bound up in this one word. That when Jesus was put forward by God to be the propitiation on our behalf for our sins, what he did, Jesus, is take on the full wrath of God, not just deflect it, not just circumnavigate it or or shield us from it. He took it on. He was made to be sin for us. And in that picture of Jesus being propitiation for us, we see all the the wonderful characteristics, the divine characteristics of a loving and merciful and gracious and holy and righteous and wrathful God. That's why for every one of us, whether we're in in my church in Spokane or in church here at uh, Sound City or any other Bible-believing, Jesus-proclaiming, God-honoring church, we must always be about sharing and proclaiming this good news, but we have to be able to share it in light of the bad news because people will not be compelled to go, wow, that's really great news, unless they they come to grips with the enormity of their sin and their rebellion and their cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul says, uh, against God. 
Now, when we talk about the gospel and the, the, the work that we have to do in proclaiming the gospel, it's not just an evangelistic necessity that we need to share the gospel with people who do not yet know Jesus. But we also, every single one of us here, we desperately need the gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the gospel needs to be preached to you every single day. Because our default mode is like, I walked into Fred Meyer this morning to, to grab some stuff and grabbed a grocery cart, and some of you will grab a grocery cart and you'll kind of let it go, and it just veers off and defaults into a, off, it doesn't go straight and true. That's us, left in our sin nature. That, that we desperately need the gospel to course correct us, to rightly reorient us, because left to ourselves, we fly off the handle. But our default is to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. Our default is, as good Americans, you know, well, God helps those who help themselves. You know, that was found in second hesitations and such. <laughs> we work for these kinds of things. We think we're to earn God's favor and his righteousness, and the gospel completely uh, denies that. Paul says, uh, for us who, as Christians, we desperately need the gospel preached to us, he says in Romans 1, 13 through 15, He's saying, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Who is Paul writing to in the book of Romans? In verse 7, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints to the Christians and he was eager to preach the gospel to the Christians why because every single day we have to have the gospel preached to us spoken to us living out the reality of what the gospel is in our lives um, we desperately need that not just only for evangelism the scriptures do not allow for us to have this mindset that we are going to work our way up the, the gospel ladder, so to speak, as if God is reaching down in our salvation or in our redemption 99.9% .9 of the way, and he's waiting for you to go, okay, I see it, all right, and then reach up and grab that. We, we tend to live like that. We may not say that we believe it, but we live like that. We think that all we have to do is God is going to make all the effort up to a little bit and we've just got to cross over in a, in a step or a leap of faith. But when we're talking about the gospel and we're talking about redemption, being saved, if you believe that, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. In fact, if you believe that you, you uh, zero point or point zero one percent you reach up to God reaching down, you are functionally your own savior. Your assurance is, and salvation is not assured. God is the one who saves. He is the one who brings dead things to life. And if you are not a Christian, if you are far apart from God, if you are uh, lost, as the Bible says, you are dead in your sins and trespasses, and dead people don't do anything. They don't woo themselves to life. They don't will themselves to be resurrected. They must be resurrected by something else another power, and that's the power of God for the salvation. That's the gospel. But we also need to realize in understanding the gospel that not only does the gospel redeem, but it unites redeemed people into local expressions of the body of Christ. The gospel is the power to propel the body of Christ forward in its God-ordained mission. And every mission that a church has, or every mission... Um, of a church ought to be grounded centrally to the Great Commission, that every church must have the same mission. It describes it in various ways. The vision to be able to get there to achieve that mission might be different because the context of uh, being here in the Upper Sound is significantly different than those of us in Spokane. Uh, some people affectionately call it Spokanistan or Spokompton. Um, I've heard a lot of those, and, uh, and don't be hating on Spokane. It is a great place, and all of you are envious of it. I know it. <laughs> but all of us have a mission, and that mission is central to the, the core of it is to the Great Commission. Let me just read the Great Commission. And before I do, let me just say, for our church, how we describe the attempt to achieve this mission is really by three words. Not to be super 
catchy or trendy or whatever, but it just expresses uh, our effort to be able to do that, and that's through reaching, making disciples, equipping the saints, and doing and serving. And, uh, and so I want to talk about reaching and making disciples. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we know this to be the Great Commission, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The gospel is the message. The church or the Christians are the messengers. And the Holy Spirit, if you don't remember, is the one who is going to empower us and enable us to achieve the great commission to making disciples, to baptizing disciples, to teaching all that Jesus commands. The Holy Spirit is the one who is going to enable us to do that. And we need to recognize as Christians, as a church, when the Holy Spirit is moving and to be able to follow him in obedience. Because ultimately, to see disciples being made uh, really glorifies the Father. And that is the chief end of man. Uh, Much has been offered by way of uh, trying to understand what it means to be a disciple. You probably have heard the word multiple times. Um, When we say it sometimes, often it loses its meaning. Like the word love. I love my wife. I love tacos. What what do I mean by that? Um, I love my wife bringing tacos. Uh, That would be great. But... We misunderstand the word, and sometimes we do that when it comes to making disciples or what a disciple is. And so I want to just briefly just highlight what I believe a disciple is in terms of uh, how the scriptures uh, line that up. To understand biblically what it means to be a disciple, I think it involves two things. Number one, it involves the call of Jesus to follow him. There has to be the call. If you remember when Jesus went after the original disciples, they weren't coming up to him going, hey, I hear you got a couple of openings. Uh, All the rabbis have rejected me up to this point. Um, You look like you could use some help. Um, Can I follow you? No, Jesus went to everybody and said, follow me, follow me, follow me. Leave this and come and follow me. And then secondly, the process by which we grow into functional maturity as a disciple. How are we going to grow as a church or as a disciple or a group of disciples? What are the processes that we're going to use? What's the discipleship strategy for us? Now, the call of Jesus is simply that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of Jesus on one side and the awakening within our hearts that we are a sinner collide, that when the gospel is is, uh, effectually uh, proclaimed, the Holy Spirit, what he does is he opens the deaf ears, the once deaf ears, to be able to hear the glorious truths of the gospel. Takes our blind eyes and removes the scales to see Jesus for who he is and to see us in light of who Jesus is. And takes our once dead cold heart of stone and makes it into a heart of flesh that beats with faith in Jesus. That's regeneration. That's regeneration, and when that happens, that new birth that takes place, I've described it to our church, that being born again, the first gasp of air that you have as a newborn babe in Christ is for Jesus, the affections for Jesus. That follow me is that call, and we're to respond to that. So anyone who hears the call and cries out to his name, uh, Romans 10.13 says, that they are saved, they're a disciple, they're redeemed. And a disciple is an infant Christian that needs to be nurtured, that needs to be cared for, that needs to be given a healthy environment with which he or she can grow and develop uh, as a disciple of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when I'm talking about the process, I actually am talking about an intentional discipleship, not so much program, but program is the word that, that works. How we take new disciples and grow them to becoming functionally mature disciples. And all of us are somewhere along that spectrum. I'm using the term functional maturity when it comes to discipleship because I've been taught that over the last couple of years. There's a gentleman in Spokane. He is a professor of uh, theology and church history at Whitworth University, Dr. Jerry Sitzer. He's written a ton of books, uh, most widely known for a book um, back in, I think it's early 2000s, called A Grace Disguised. This man 
while he was teaching at Whitworth, he lost his wife, his mother, two children in a drunk driving car accident. Um, two other children weren't in the car, so they obviously survived, and he survived, but he lost everybody else. And so he, he had to wrestle with a, a theology of, of uh, tragedy and disaster and grief. But I've learned so much from him about what it means to be a disciple that I'm going to uh, steal much of what he has to say. And there are characteristics that Dr. Sitzer um, has given me and I gave to Pastor Aaron in a, in a PDF form and I think are being made available to, to you folks. Uh, but characteristics that actually point to what does it mean to be a functionally mature disciple of Christ. Not pick and choose like it's a la carte, like, well, I, I want to focus in on this, or I'm, I think I'm really good at that, so I'm going to be doing this. No, this is what it means. When you take a snapshot of a fully functioning, mature disciple of Jesus, this is what it looks like. Number one, they are grounded in grace. Grace permeates everything that you do. Grace just falls all over people who are near you because of the grace that's swelling up in you, overflowing. That mature disciples know the biblical story and how they fit into that redemptive story. You know that when you were saved and redeemed that you fall into this great grand meta-narrative of God's uh, redemptive work and you're a part of that. And it really sinks into your bones. Not just how you come into faith, but how you play in the grand drama. Number three, discipline. That mature disciples submit their lives to rhythms of discipline. And those rhythms of discipline actually set up a posture within us to be able to worship well, to be able to grow in our faith, and to be able to serve. And we need to grow in discipline. Number four, submission. That mature disciples are submissive to God in all circumstances, for they acknowledge that he is sovereign, that he is good, and that he is wise. And mature disciples grow in purity, holiness, and humility. This is virtue as God forms their character. He is the one that's going to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, from the time that you're born again to the time that you meet Jesus uh, in, your, in glory, that whole process is sanctification. And you are going to be uh, experiencing all sorts of things that the Holy Spirit is using to, to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus, to, to work in you the virtues of purity and holiness and goodness and humility. Now, I'm sure all of you are going, well, I, I, I suck at all of these so far. Well, that's the sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit has in us. But the snapshot of what it means to be a fully functioning, mature disciple all of these have to be characteristic of that disciple. Number six, healthy relationships. That mature disciples put a priority on relationships, not just their primary relationships with their family, but also the relationships with those within the local body of Christ, the church in community. And not just uh, isolating ourselves in pockets of just Christian subculture community, but to also have healthy relationships with those who do not yet know Jesus. Because if you are permeating and, out and flowing just abundantly with grace, you need to be around non-Christians. You need to be able to do your good works before them so that they will see your good works and they will glorify the Father. They won't go to you and go, wow, you're such an amazing person and, and glorify you, that the whole intent of it is that they will see that there's something in you, that's something different. They don't know why somebody would love them and care for them the way that you are doing it. And they glorify the Father in their, their unbelief in all of that. And so we need to be putting ourselves in those kinds of relationships. Um, we've heard terms like doing life together, loving on each other, and other really cheesy kind of Christianese type things. Um, live life long together, whatever it may be. I heard a, a quote from Joe, Joe Thorne on a, on a podcast that talked about this and what these kinds of relationships in community actually mean is this. And he says, and I quote, that you are mutually together, mutually investing in each other's well-being and lives. So some of you will, just because of your nature, you will isolate yourself from community and then you will start to lament, why isn't anybody reaching out to me? Why doesn't anybody love me? Don't they care for me? You too are to be mutually investing in the well-being of others. 
And when you remove yourself from community, you become isolated, and things that are isolated start to decay. When I was a, a survival instructor for the Air Force, I spent a lot of time in the resistance world, in the prisoner of war world, and the one thing that we would do to our people to train them for what they would experience if they were ever captured by the enemy is to put them in isolation. If you put them in isolation for just a certain amount of time, you've got them. Because you can do all sorts of things to them psychologically. And you think the enemy, spiritually, doesn't know that? That if he, can't, if he can remove you from community, he's got you. He's got you. And you'll start believing the lies from the enemy. So there's this mutual investing that must take place in the lives of each other for each other's well-being. Number seven, belonging. Mature disciples recognize that their primary identity is in Christ. But as a manifestation of this identity, they also recognize that they are to develop their identity within the local church. You are members of this body. You're not consumers. You're members of it. You function within the body. And as grotesque as it may seem, you lop off a part of your body and move it in isolation, it's going to decay and die. But you belong to the body. Number eight, stewardship of resources. Mature disciples recognize nothing belongs to them but only to God. You've been called to steward your time, your talent, and your treasure. You're not to steward it in such a way where you bury it or hide it. You're actually to use it for the kingdom and for his glory. You, you've been gifted these things and you're to steward them and God desires that you use them for his purpose. Number nine, a sense of calling. Mature disciples recognize that God calls all believers to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. What we witnessed here with the, uh, the installing of new elders that's a beautiful thing, and for you church people, you need to understand, it's not that these two now are the only ones who have a sense of calling. That every single one of us here has a sense of calling. Not only to belong, but we're all a part of the great commission that uh, Jesus has commanded us to be about, and to go out and love people, which is the great commandment. And so all of us must have this sense of calling. And then number 10, finally, the life in the Spirit. Mature disciples grow ever more dependent on the Holy Spirit in all areas of life. And so that's what it means to be a functional disciple. I'm sure people will have differing things or maybe would like to add certain things, but I think that's a really good snapshot of what it means to be a mature disciple. Now, what do we do with these disciples is another thing. We need to equip these disciples into these areas. Because like I said, it's not just you can pick this particular area and work on that, that you're to actually exhibit all of these characteristics. And our responsibility as, as Christians, as part of a church, is to be a part of the equipping of the saints in this. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, he says, And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry or work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I told the first service that if I, when I get to heaven and I can actually have a conversation with the Apostle Paul, I'll ask him why he never used periods. He has so many times, the sentences are so stinking long. But when you read this passage, if you understand anything about church history, prior to the Protestant Reformation, the church functioned in such a way where there is a great divide between clergy and laity. And what was one of the, the primary things that kind of precipitated this were poor translations of this particular verse. One of the, the horrible translations of this ended up in the, the 1611 translation of the King James Bible, so well after the, the Reformation in the 1500s. But the King James Bible puts a comma, a couple of commas, in some of the most, most unfortunate places. And I've got it up on the screen. Let me just read this to you. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, comma, there's the unfortunate comma, for the work 
of the ministry, another bad comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So reading that, whose responsibility then is it for equipping the saints? Clergy only. It is given a threefold job description that the ordained clergy, the pastors, the elders, are to number one, perfect the saints. That's a horrible job. (laughs) To do the ministry and to edify or build up the body of Christ. That's what the clergy, according to this translation of this text, is supposed to do. So that takes all of the responsibility off of the laity. And Paul never meant that to happen. And better translations, as we understood the Greek a little bit more and kind of got away from that confusion and actually gave us three tasks, one to the pastor, one to the laity, and then one to both of us. For the pastor, equip the saints. For the laity, do the ministry. For both of us, edify the body. That's what we're supposed to do. So when when pastors and elders equip you and you do ministry, together when we fulfill this job, this great mission, we actually build one another up and we edify the body. And people get saved and are getting baptized and the church is growing in health and we're planting more churches because it's not about just the job of the pastor. It's all of us get to be a part of this great commission work. But everybody within the body here needs to understand that functioning as equipped disciples, uh, the work of the ministry, um, it's only going to get accomplished when we're all doing this together. Uh, When the pastors are equipping, and when the laity is doing, and we get to see, by God's grace, the building up of the body. I read a poem to our church on our anniversary um, back in January that speaks to the tendency of this doing this this culture that we've established within our church <clears throat> that when churches grow uh, there's always this rule that 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work and all those kinds of ridiculous statistics there's a reality to many of those things but we've kind of we've created that culture it's been somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy for us but but this poem may describe some of you uh, you're the consumer in church you come and you sit on your blessed assurance and that's about it and you don't do anything. You don't serve, uh, but you come. Now, if you're new and if you're a guest, obviously, come. Come. But as you understand what it means to be a part of a body of Christ, then, uh, not under compulsion, but out of a deep desire and love and worship for Jesus, you get to serve. But I read this poem to our church, and it it goes like this. It's called Somebody Else. The author is anonymous. And it reads like this. There's a clever young guy named somebody else. There's nothing this guy can't do. He is busy from morning till way late at night, just substituting for you. You're asked to do this or you're asked to do that, and what is your ready reply? Get somebody else to do that job. He'll do it much better than I. So much to do in this weary old world, and so much, and and workers so few, and somebody else, all weary and worn, is still substituting for you. How many of us have ever done that before, where uh, you're being asked to do something and uh, somebody else can do that, you know, or somebody else who actually knows what they're doing can do that? We do that all the time. And the church, the body of Christ, in the life of the church, this really should never be. That for those of us who are born again, who are redeemed, who are members of the body, each one of us has a part to play. There's equipping that takes place, and there's doing ministry that takes place, and together we get to joyously experience the building up of the body together, and it's a wonderful picture. We're also to be able to emulate Jesus, and Mark chapter 10, verse 45, gives us a picture of what Jesus was really like. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. So who are we to go, well... Serving's really not my thing. I don't feel called to serve. Um, Jesus served, and we should serve as well. As disciples of Christ, we are to grow in our Christ-likeness. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in each and every one of us. And one of the, the many attributes of Jesus, Paul lists in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He says this, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now I've had it, and I'm sure Pastor Aaron and the other elders have had it as well, or ministry leaders here within the church, where you've got people saying, hey, where can I serve? And, and usually that happens after a message like this or uh, right after a Sunday and I've just come off the, the pulpit and somebody goes, all right, where can I serve? And I'm going, I just want to go to lunch. What is really a great blessing is you recognizing where those needs are and you going, you know what? That's where I'm going to go. That's where I'm going to serve. I see a need here. My kids are in there, or I see a need in security, or production, or, you know, I'm going to come and just clean, or set up and tear down. I see the need. I'm going to go there and serve. How wonderful it is for a pastor or ministry leaders to come along and see, who's the new person serving? When did they start serving? Who brought them to to serve? They just showed up. Wow, does that really work? I think it does. Paul also says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, however you serve, however you work, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. When you're serving in kids or when you're serving as a community group leader or you're set up or tear down in production or whatever it may be, many of them behind the scenes, you're not working and serving for men. You're working and serving for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. You're not doing these things for men. You are actually serving the Lord Jesus. Well, Sound City, the Lord has been exceedingly good to you. He's certainly been exceedingly gracious and kind to us over the last year and eight months. Um, we've talked about before in our church that we just needed a, need a runway to be able to fully take off. And by God's grace, your church is a part of that extension of the runway. And every, every now and then, we, because of our own mistakes or even our own sin or just not knowing sometimes what we're supposed to be doing, it feels like the runway has shortened quite a bit and we just don't know what's gonna happen. And then the Lord brings in Sound City and says, hey, we're here for you. We're gonna come alongside and, and not only support you, but pray for you, care for you. We're partners in this gospel work together. And then the runway extends. And we have a shot. We have more than a shot. Why? Because Jesus has planted our church. And he has planted your church. And we get to be a part of this wonderful story of God's grace. Um, And so let me just wrap up by by praying for us and really glorifying and glorying God for all that he has done. 